Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight, and most especially uh, the Air Force Board, uh, to hear the 18th Sir Sidney Cam Memorial Lecture. This is a lecture only given every two years, uh, and, and on this occasion, um, in partnership with the Air Force Board. 1939 uh, was a landmark year in many ways connected to air power. But it was also the year we moved into this building and made it our permanent headquarters. And in May of that same year, the Society organized a garden party, well, actually an air show, at a place that's now called Heathrow. <laughs> Needless to say, a Hawker Hurricane designed, of course, by Sir Sidney Cam, was on display, thanks to the cooperation of the Royal Air Force. Symbolizing then, as does our lecture event tonight, the very close link between the society and the RAF. When Sir Glenn Torpy addressed the council, he emphasized his intention to nurture and maintain that link and there could be no better way than his coming here tonight and giving us this lecture. As you would expect, he's had a glittering career already in the service, but I'm really most pleased to see that he started as an aeronautical engineer studying at Imperial College. Ladies and gentlemen, Air Chief Marshal Sir Glenn Torpy, Chief of the Air Staff. Uh, David, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it is a great pleasure to be here tonight, um, and it's a, a real privilege to be giving the uh, Sir Sidney Cam Memorial Lecture. Um, now, as already been said, uh, Sir Sidney was probably one of our most distinguished aeronautical engineers and designers, and as we've already heard, perhaps most well-known for, of course, the Hawker Hurricane. But he actually, or his designs, produced over 27,000 aircraft uh, of 50 different types, which is, I think, a really remarkable um, achievement. And although the hurricane was overshadowed by the Spitfire, um, we shouldn't forget that actually hurricanes were responsible for shooting down more enemy aircraft uh, than the Spitfire during the war. Um, it was also very easy to both build and to maintain as well, both of which were very useful aspects during the Battle of Britain and indeed the whole of the war. Um, it was extremely rugged and a fantastic weapons platform, very stable as well. Design was very forward-looking as well um, and drew very much on the past as well as looking to the future. It was the RAF's first monoplane. Um, it had a retractable undercarriage, it had flaps, variable speed prop, and it had eight guns as well. But the fuselage actually came from the Hawker Hart. So building on that past experience, but using new technology and looking ahead to develop one of our fant most fantastic aircraft. 
Now, I mention that not just in the context of Sir Sidney Cam, but actually in the context of what I want to talk about tonight. And that's to look at the past, but actually to see if there are some lessons we should be drawing for today and also the future. And I say that particularly because we are coming to the 25th anniversary of the Falklands War, um, and it's very easy to focus on what we're doing today in Iraq and Afghanistan and actually forget that what has passed and what might actually happen in the future as well. It is very easy to be seduced into the detail of what we're doing today and think that's what we're going to be doing in the future. Um, and I think, I hope that will be one of the threads throughout what I'm going to say over the next um, 45 minutes. Um, so what I'd li really like to, uh, to cover um, is looking back over the last 25 years. And just let's look at the air operations that we actually have conducted during that period and let's see if there are some themes which spring out uh, which we should be taking forward into the future. Um, so those are the particular campaigns that I would like to touch on. Uh, well, then I'll try and draw some lessons out of those and then look ahead to the future. And it will be what I think the future may be. And I'm delighted for you to shoot me down in flames during the question period, if you wish. So, first of all, um, the Falklands War. And as we said, uh, approaching the 25th anniversary. Um, and I don't intend going through the campaign in any great detail at all. Um, but I would suggest to you that even today it is a remarkable achievement what was what was actually conducted 25 years ago in terms of the strategic distance involved the lack of basing that we faced the logistic challenge we we faced as well as obviously the enemy and it is worth highlighting some of the air power um, aspects of the campaign First of all, I would suggest to you that the sinking of the Belgrano was probably one of the turning points of the war. Because it was really the Belgrano which was our biggest threat and the biggest thing which stood in the path of victory for us because of the implications for the Royal Navy. And after the Belgrano, I would suggest to you that it was the Argentinian Air Force. Because although I think the ground force recognised that they would have quite a stiff fight on their hands, I don't believe that the UK land force believed that they would not be able to overcome the Argentinian uh, ground force which had lodged itself on the Falklands. So it was the Argentinian Air Force that we were really up against. Um, and I think they were a dangerous threat. Um, and I think they certainly could have been more dangerous than they actually were. And I say that in the context that if they had possibly chosen different targets, rather than going against the, in inverted commas, capital ships, they'd gone against some of our troop carriers, then they could have had a much more significant effect than they actually did. I would also suggest that if they had been uh, rather better at their uh, target weapon matching, then they would have achieved a lot more success, and indeed if some of their weapons had been 
rather more reliable than they were. So I think we got off relatively lightly uh, at the end of the day. Um, but I would also suggest to you that one of the key aspects which came out of that campaign was the importance of gaining air superiority and the implications of not doing so. And indeed, the Falklands War was the last time that the British Army has ever been bombed from the air. And it's quite easy to forget that fact. For the United States forces, it was the Korean War that they were last bombed from the air. And that, I do, sets in people's minds a, a certain set of conditions. So obtaining and maintaining air super superiority, I think, is absolutely fundamental. But I think we struggled to achieve air superiority because of the limitations on basing, effectively only being able to operate from Ascension Island and off carriers with limited capability, and of course because of the limitations of our own air defence capability in terms of the sea harrier and uh, the limited capability we had on a small number of GR3s as well. So I think the situation could have been very different um, if things had turned out slightly differently. I'd also suggest to you that, that the strategic effect of the raid by the Vulcan um, was important, very important. Because the effect of that attack was not just to disrupt Stanley Air Force, but it also forced the Argentinian Air Force to re redeploy its resources to the north of Argentina because they felt that the mainland was then subsequently under threat. And by leaching those forces further north, obviously reduced the threat that we had to face in the Falkland Islands. So in that sense, I believe the Vulcan raid had a strategic effect on the campaign over and above what it achieved in um, the tactical success it had on the airfield. And it's easy to overlook the complexity of the Black Buck raid. And I'd recommend to any of you, and I, I haven't got shares in the book, but Vulcan uh, 607 by Roland White, I do, do think tells a very engaging and compelling story um, about the whole complexity, the professionalism, commitment, and dare I say the bravery of many of the individuals involved in that raid. Um, now, I think Sidney Cam would also have taken great heart from the relationship between industry and the military during that campaign as well. The way that industry responded to, to what we needed to do in modifying equipment, not just in the air environment, but you will all recall what was done with Hercules to put air-to-air -air refueling in it by marshals of Cambridge, um, equipping Vulcans with anti-radiation missiles as well. And it was all done at incredible speed. Now, it's easy to focus just on the Vulcan and the Harrier. They certainly did take the limelight. But it's easy to overlook some of the other contributions, particularly in the reconnaissance area and the transport area as well. And the provision of maritime surveillance uh, at such distance, particularly given the lack of organic capability that the Royal Navy had, was a significant challenge. But using a combination of Nimrod, of the Vulcan, and the Victor, they all played a significant part 
in improving our um, knowledge of what was going on down in the Falklands area and provided, I believe, vital support to the overall fleet. Maintaining the air bridge, not just to Ascension Island, uh, but also directly to the task force as it transited down south and indeed down to the Falkland Islands, uh, was again an absolutely key enabler. Touch very, very briefly on the Harrier and indeed the Chinook, um, and both of those very much in the limelight, both in terms of close air support to the land component, but also in, in terms of battlefield mobility. And we saw the implications of losing the bulk of the Chinook force on the Atlantic conveyor and the effect that that had on our ability on the ground to prosecute the plan as we would like to have prosecuted it. So I would contend that air power was absolutely essential to successfully de delivering uh, the Falklands campaign uh, to our desire. But now, if we can propel ourselves actually only seven years on to the invasion of Kuwait in August of 1990, to the first Gulf War. And the immediate response to that, that movement of uh, Iraqi forces was a very, very rapid deployment of uh, both UK and American aircraft to the region. And I think this demonstrates the value of a swift military response, which is an articulation of political intent, an initial articulation of military intent. And clearly it was designed to deter Iraqi ingress into Saudi Arabia, and we can argue about whether that, that achieved the aim or not. It certainly did stop them. Again, I don't intend going through the campaign in any great detail, but what I will, would suggest is that the campaign was designed very much as an air campaign followed by a land campaign. Gaining air superiority was a key component of the air campaign, but also huge amount of effort was directed at shaping the battle space for any follow-on land campaign. There was little requirement and indeed little effort put into truly integrating the air and the land component together. What the campaign did highlight though is the, the huge advances that technology uh, provided the whole force, particularly in terms of stealth and precision. And you'll all recall, we actually deployed buccaneers out um, partway through the campaign to deliver a very embryonic precision capability with its targeting pod, and we rushed into service two tiled pods, at that stage, cutting-edge technology, to give us uh, the precision capability. But it was, I think everybody would, would, would admit, very embryonic. But I think it also demonstrated the psychological effect that air power can have as well. And the role of B-52s in shaping the battle space and having that impact on uh, the enemy, I think showed uh, what air, cam air power can do in creating effects and not just kinetic effects as well. 
There is no doubt that the combination of, and the use of air power over those couple of months resulted probably in the highest percentage of a fighting force which surrendered or deserted in recent years. Certainly the campaigns that I can recall. And um, as a result of that, the ground campaign, which as we all know, lasted for a very short amount of, ta amount of time, was aptly referred to uh, later on really as Operation Roundup rather than um, Desert Storm. But it also um, highlighted, I think, the differences in approach between the RAF and the United States Air Force as well. We emer emerged out of the Cold War, very much focused on low-level operations, um, due in, in the main to three reasons. First of all, the threat we faced um, in Central Europe, the weather in Central Europe, and a lack of some of the vital enabling capabilities which, which would allow you to penetrate at medium altitude. Um, a serious SEAD capability and some of the other capabilities which you need to be able to penetrate at those sort of altitudes. Um, but one thing it certainly did is reinforce the need for control of the air. Not only in terms of providing freedom of manoeuvre for the air component, but actually providing that freedom to the other two components and denying it to the enemy. It reinforced, I, I think again, the value of technology as a true force multiplier. Um, and it started people thinking genuinely about effects and not just, I've got a target, I've got some weapons, that's all I need to think about. Truly, what are we trying to do here? We've touched on precision, but we also need to recognize that it was the first glimpse of what precision was really going to provide for us. Uh, and only about 8% of the weapons we dropped during Desert Storm were precision guided. And also, I think, highlighted that just because you've got precision, it is not the total solution. And, and I will certainly pick that up as a thread as I go through um, my talk. It highlighted the difficulties of gathering battle damage assessment so that you can judge the success of the campaign, progress against the campaign plan, and also judge whether you have to include targets um, for re-attack and such like. And although very embryonically, we saw the real challenge that, that even fairly rudimentary camouflage um, could have on our rudimentary battle damage assessment as well. And a number of hazards that we went and revisited um, after the campaign, um, which we thought had been um, damaged, indeed had just very rudimentary um, camouflage put on them. There was also another major feature, which I, came, I think came out of uh, Desert Storm, and that was that there were some people who advocated that air power could win wars alone. Um, I don't believe that true. I don't believe it was true then. I don't believe it is true today. There are certain circumstances which come together which may allow one component to take a greater um, proportion of the activity in a campaign uh, than another. But that is force of circumstances. We should not be crafting or basing our doctrine on that sort of philosophy. And again, I'll pick up on that as I go um, through uh, my talk. So after Desert Storm, um, move forward only three years now 
to Bosnia and 1995. Very different campaign to the Middle East. Different terrain, different climatic conditions, complex political and international dynamics as well. Um, and by mid-95, as some of you will recall, the conflict in Bosnia-Herzegovina had already been going on for three and a half years. Um, it reached a peak in the spring of 1995 where there were attacks conducted against the safe havens and Sarajevo. And despite repeated warnings by the international community and NATO um, and the imposition of no-fly zones as well, uh, Bosnian Serb forces continued with those attacks, particularly against Sarajevo. In the end, patience uh, eventually ran out when there was a mortar attack um, in a marketplace in Sarajevo um, in late August, which killed 37 people and injured 90. It wasn't the greatest loss of life. There was actually a, a mortar attack in the same marketplace the year before, which killed um, more than that. But as a result of that, NATO uh, instigated Operation Deliberate Force, a very focused air campaign which ran from the 30th of August through till the 20th of September. But it was pretty intense. 400 aircraft, 5,000 personnel, 15 nations involved, um, and over 3,500 sorties were flown against discrete uh, targets, 350 in all, against mainly infrastructure, command and control, communications. What that did, though, that focused our campaign, is it successfully brought Milosevic to the negotiating table and ultimately led to the signing of the Dayton Agreement. And when he was signing the agreement, he said to Wesley Clark, um, the quote you see um, underneath that picture, it was NATO's bombs and missiles and high technology that defeated us. So... There would be some who said, well, that just reinforces what um, we said in the first Gulf War, that air power can uh, win, win wars. Again, I don't um, advocate that. Uh, it, it reinforced the need for precision. Um, in the context that it was a very discreet air campaign uh, with limited objectives, 68% of all the weapons were PGMs. Um, but I say a very limited target set. Uh, but what it did highlight was the real difficulties of operating in a much more complex European environment than in the deserts of the Middle East. So, four years later now, still in the Balkans, um, this time in Kosovo. And uh, the international community faced with massive um, ethnic cleansing um, in Kosovo and went through a very detailed um, planning process, looking at all the different options, and many of you in this room will have been um, intimately involved with much of that. There was no real appetite, uh, both in the, in the uh, coalition or internationally, for a major ground campaign, both in terms of the large force levels that were likely to be required um, because of the massive costs which were likely um, to be incurred, and actually the difficulty of putting or gaining consensus within the alliance to actually generate 
a large force. And given the success that we had seen in Bosnia, people felt that, well, why don't we adopt a similar approach to Bosnia? And Milosevic will cave in. And as a consequence of that, um, Operation Allied Force commenced in March of 1999. And that continued for 78 days. And Milosevic did not cave in. And indeed, at the end, NATO did have to resort to the threat of a major land invasion. Um, that took time to generate the force levels. But I'd suggest to you also that it was the threat of... Well, it was the manifestation of intense political pressure, particularly from the Russians, uh, that eventually brought Milosevic to the negotiating table. And I think there's a number of reasons why air power didn't have the same effect uh, this time round. First of all, the political circumstances were very different. I think also air power was not used in the way that we would like to have seen it used. And for a variety of reasons, consensus in the international community, the fear of high collateral damage, civilian casualties and such like, it led to a gradual escalation in the use of air power rather than a properly constructed air power air campaign which um, effectively exploited the characteristics of air power. But some of the other lessons which came out were very significant for us. First of all, uh, the way that weather constrained our operations. Conducted in the spring where the weather in the Balkans historically not very good, rather than the summer. Um, and that caused us really significant problems in terms of maintaining tempo and keeping the pressure on the enemy. The operation was also conducted in the glare of the international media, and probably more so than we'd seen in the past. Um, made more difficult, of course, with bombing of the Chinese um, embassy, but also incidents of collateral damage where the media focused considerable attention. It also, I believe, demonstrated the difficulty of achieving air superiority. It was no problem defeating um, the Serbian Air Force. Where we faced a real challenge was in dismantling the integrated air defense system. And that constrained the way we operated throughout the campaign. Uh, and that, again, is something which I think we saw in the Second Gulf War. So, whilst operations in the Balkans highlighted, I believe, the strategic effect that precise and precision strike air operations can have, I think it also exposed significant weaknesses in our coalition capabilities, particularly the need for an all-weather precision capability, which could maintain tame the tempo 24 hours a day, seven days of the week, and also our ability to minimize collateral damage as well. We also only used about 40% of the whole um, of our, during the campaign, only 40% of the munitions were precision guided, and a lot fewer of them were GPS guided to give us the all-weather capability. We also uh, needed much better I-STAR than we had had in previous campaigns and we'd need in the future. And you see in, in the slide on the screen at the moment, the two at the bottom 
were again very rudimentary attempts by the Bosnian Serb uh, forces to provide decoys. But they were very successful in negating many of our attacks. It also um, exposed our reliance on key enablers and emphasized the need to invest in those areas, particularly in terms of ISTAR, suppression of enemy air defenses, and command control. There was also, because of effectively an air campaign with no ground campaign until right at the very end, very little integration between the air and the land forces. Um, although there were emerging trends that we needed to start thinking about. So we then move on to Second Gulf War. Um, very different. And I will only focus on the combat phase of the operation. I'm very happy in questions to talk about what we're doing today because I think many of the lessons actually translate to what we're doing today. Um, from the very start, the plan was going to be different to how we'd approach the campaign in the first Gulf War. Um, it recognized still that we needed to achieve air superiority as swiftly as possible, but Franks also wanted a truly integrated plan which was going to achieve results as swiftly as possible. Initially, the air operation he envisaged was going to take approximately 16 days. But as that planning matured over the months leading up to the campaign, that was gradually whittled down to two days, and I think everybody realizes that because of events on the ground, that eventually ended up with the land campaign starting before the major air campaign. Why did Franks do that? I think he did it for three reasons. First of all, he felt that a truly integrated um, campaign delivered the greatest chance of dislocating the re regime and achieving the swiftest possible advance to Baghdad. He also had to secure the southern oil fields as rapidly as possible before the Iraqi forces could damage them. They were going to be Iraq's long-term future, and they had to be protected at all costs. He also was very concerned about the risk that he was exposed to with close to a quarter of a million men locked up in a fairly small piece of Kuwait and the threat that they were exposed to. That presented quite a significant challenge to Buzz Mosley, the air component commander, because he then was laid in front of him five concurrent tasks that he had to achieve, which, first of all, to counter the theater ballistic missile threat, which we'd seen in the first Gulf War and was still judged to exist. He had to execute the strategic attack against counter-regime targets, predominantly around Baghdad, which was one of Franks' priorities. He had to achieve air superiority through counter-air against the Iraqi Air Force in terms of aircraft, air defense aircraft flown and the airfields from which they were operating. And, of course, he had to dismantle the integrated air defense system, the so-called SuperMES, in particular. But a massive amount of effort was also put into supporting the land components, first of all in, in securing the southern oil fields, but then in attriting the Republican Guard divisions, which were the main threat that Frank saw, saw to the land component. He needed them attrited to a certain level so that they could subsequently be engaged by the land component 
at minimum risk and highest chance of success. And then, of course, he had to support special forces operations throughout Iraq as well. So that was a significant um, task that he faced, and, and that presented some real difficulties in terms of prosecuting all of those with limited resources as well. It is, I think, the most highly integrated campaign that I've seen, certainly, in, in my time um, in the Air Force. And I would hold up one particular part of the operation as something we should maybe take forward to the future. And that was the anti-scud operations in the Western Desert, which saw the Air Component Special Forces and the Land Component brought together in set-piece exercises leading up to the whole operation across in the States to truly integrate the capabilities together to refine the procedures, the tactics, refine the equipment to execute what was always going to be a demanding task. And we could say that that maybe was the, the start of agile mission groups where you can bring forces together mold away they're going to be used for a specific task, then dismantle them to be used for something else. It also saw 80% of the air activity directed towards supporting the land component, a far greater effort than we've ever seen in the past. But it also demonstrated some of the weaknesses we had in our integrated air-land approach as well. And indeed, the difference between the way that Five Corps, uh, U.S. Army approached it, U.S. Marine Corps approached it with a much more highly integrated approach for very good doctrinal reasons as well. It again emphasized the far greater use of precision weapons. This time round, 70% of all the weapons expended were precision-guided. Um, and on the U.K.'s case, 85% uh, of the weapons were precision-guided, including things like uh, Storm Shadow rolled out for the first time. It emphasised yet again I-Star as an absolutely key enabler. And we had made quite significant advances. And you'll recall, halfway through the campaign, the dust storms which appeared on the scene for two or three days. And the use of some of our sophisticated I-Star capabilities, like J-Stars, allowed the campaign against the Republican Guards to be um, continued during that weather. It also highlighted the massive uh, capability um, that UAVs would provide us, particularly in terms of persistence, the one capability that we had lacked in the past. And it also was the first real demonstration of time-sensitive targeting as well. And we started off in a pretty limited manner with what we call dynamic tasking, uh, really against mobile systems, but then got into true time-sensitive targeting, being able to, to respond to very rapidly gathered intelligence. But, again, a key theme which came out of the campaign was the reliance on key enablers. Uh, in this case, air-to-air -air refueling, I-Star, precision, command and control. But the one capability that constrained the whole output from the air campaign was air-to-air -air refueling. And for the three weeks running up to the start of the campaign, Buzz Mosley spent most of his time going around the region trying to identify basing 
for air-to-air refueling resources so he could prosecute the campaign that had been planned. I'd just like to step back slightly now to one campaign that we um, haven't discussed, and that is the no-fly zone operations, um, which were conducted from 1992 right through to 2003, Operations Northern and Southern Watch. Um, and these were conducted post the uh, first Gulf War because of the regime's lack of compliance with UNSCR 686, where they were continuing to actively prosecute the master Arabs in the south and the, Cur the Kurds in the north. And as a result of that, the US, UK, France and, Saud and Saudi Arabia, under the auspices of the UN, established the no-fly zones in northern and southern Iraq. And for the next 11 years, we conducted surveillance operations um, in those two areas. And we can argue about the success of uh, limiting activity against the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs and also the ability of Iraqi forces to threaten neighboring countries. But in those 11 years, uh, 8,000 people um, were involved in the activity. We flew close to 150,000 sorties um, on the operation. We did not lose one aircraft or one coalition airman. And although there were spikes in activity during that period um, because of concerns over WMD activity and indeed the movement of, of Iraqi forces uh, towards Ku Kuwait in 1994, um, which resulted in precision attacks against a number of different targets, I believe that no-fly zones did achieve uh, considerable success. And they achieved it by containing the Iraqi regime in a form that was acceptable to the international community, both in terms of political and military risk, and indeed at minimum cost. Um, and it prevented us having to undertake another major land campaign. So I think it is a good example of where air power can be used to, for strategic effect. Um, and if we focus on effects rather than kinetic activity, we can really leverage air power to provide and promote peace and security uh, if it's used correctly. So, in reviewing those air operations over the last 25 years, um, what can we draw from it? Well, first of all, I think you can see how diverse all of the operations were. Um, and I think, it, to me, it underpins one of the enduring themes that we see, that the world is a very unpredictable place. And indeed, if you look at the world today, all the sources of instability that we see, religious extremism, political and economic instability, threat from terrorism, WMD, use by terrorist organizations, competition for resources, climate change, population growth. Um, they are pretty endless, to be quite honest. We've also seen, I think, the speed with which things can change. And you only have to look at Lebanon, and indeed, you only have to look at 
the statements by Putin in recent days, uh, to see how quickly uh, the strategic environment can change and escalate from a pretty small tactical event into a major operational and sometimes strategic event as well. What do I draw out of that? I believe, certainly for the UK, that it, it indicates that we should be maintaining a balanced force structure which is capable of operating across the spectrum of operations from top-end warfighting through what we're doing in Iraq and Afghanistan today, very much focused on counterinsurgency warfare, through to um, the important but also demanding humanitarian operations that we see proliferating around the world. From an air power perspective, I think there are some enduring lessons which the past 25 years serves to demonstrate. Um, and I sum them up very much in this slide. First of all, and fundamentally, that maintaining control of the air provides that freedom of manoeuvre. And the ability for all of the components to execute the plan as they would like it executed. The diversity and the strategic distances that we've had to operate over and the speed with which we've had to, to operate, I think also demonstrates the need for rapid deployment and the ability to sustain a force at range as well. So all that that encompasses in terms of strategic lift, um, both um, air lift and sea lift as well. It demonstrates the importance of being able to provide precise, timely effects across the battle space. And that is the one, one of the unique things that air power delivers. It is the ability to deliver effects rapidly across the whole battle space, both for strategic effect, but also in support of the three major components as well. It emphasizes the importance of battlefield mobility in terms of tactical transport and um, rotary wing capability as well. And we see that played out today in Iraq and Afghanistan um, to uh, great importance, particularly when you're facing a demanding and sophisticated threat on the ground as well, which leads into force protection. And one of the things that we see today is the challenge that we all face in keeping up with an adaptable enemy who can harness technology as well as we can harness technology. And I think that will be an enduring theme for the future as well. But if you're going to achieve what we want to achieve in terms of integrated operations across all the environments, the one thing you do need is a sophisticated command and control uh, capability which is going to be able to deliver the speed and tempo that we need. But I make no apologies for emphasizing yet again the need for a sophisticated I-star capability. Um, and, and I'll come back to that as, as my final major theme. Technology is something that the air environment has always leveraged as a great force multiplier. And we've seen that with the way that precision has improved over the years and the way, dare I say, that I-star has improved as well. But it's emphasized in all of our campaigns the need for speed, tempo, precision we can do. We can drop now a weapon within a couple of meters anywhere in the globe. The question is, do we know where we want to drop it? And that's where I think um, our challenge is for the future. And it's providing persistence, both in terms of I-star and a persistent striking capability, 
which I think is the challenge we face for the future. And wrapped up with all of that is providing a realistic and relevant training mechanism. I've always viewed capability as equipment, people, and training. And you've got to make sure that you can deliver all three in balance if you're going to deliver true capability. But I will return now to my theme of ISTAR, if I may, because I think the operations that we're conducting today in Iraq and Afghanistan do truly um, demonstrate that everything that we do is focused on intelligence-led strike operations. Um, and the coin environment is probably the most complex environment that we're going to have to operate in. The introduction of UAVs like Predator has demonstrated the importance of persistence um, and also the increasingly sophisticated array of sensors that you can put on relatively small pr platforms like Predator B. But it is that ability, having identified a target, to be able to strike it as well, particularly when we're looking at small mobile targets which may only appear on the ba battle space for fleeting moments, particularly in an, in an increasingly ambiguous battle space operating in, in uh, an environment where you'll be intertwined with the civilian population and in urban areas as well, well, where the enemy may be using sophisticated camouflage techniques as well. So I am delighted that the UK has decided to invest in Predator B. Um, the introduction of Astor, we took delivery of the first platform last week, will give us a significant boost in capability alongside our existing iStar capabilities as well. But also, uh, the capability that is now being delivered through non-traditional means. The introduction of fourth-generation targeting pods on our tactical platforms like the GR4 and the Harrier um, is giving us a, an I-Star capability um, directly data linked down to the ground, which again is furthering our intelligence gathering capability. And I'll just demonstrate to you the sort of capability which is delivered now. This is imagery straight from, from Afghanistan, the new sniper pod, data linked down to a Rover 3 terminal. You can see what this gives you, not just the ability to offer better discrimination of targets for attack from the air, but it gives you the ability to surveil what's going on uh, on the ground so you can coordinate operations in a much more um, coordinated manner. So the sniper pod and the uh, lightning pod have given us a quantum uh, lifting capability uh, and indeed the land component, a quantum lifting capability. But there is no single iStar platforms which is going to solve this problem for us. I don't think the UK has exploited the space environment to the extent that we possibly should have. Um, and the launch of TopSat a couple of years ago, I think, has possibly opened the door for us to exploit small satellite technology and get us that entry-level capability that we may need, although we also leverage a huge amount clearly off our links with the United States. But I do passionately believe that it's not just about the platforms. We have some excellent iStar platforms, but we need to exploit the information um, 
that these platforms are actually generating and be able to share that information, cross-queue the platforms, not just the iStar platforms, that the other platforms that are going to be on the network. It's all about information exchange, I believe, in the future, if we are truly going to be able to, te to maintain tempo um, and speed in an increasingly complex environment. Which brings me on, finally, to training. If we're going to truly operate an environment like this, then I think the training, the live training that we do day to day, um, is going to be less relevant to the way that we are day to day going to fight. I think at the moment, in the totality of our training, there is a big gap, which we are just not doing, because we don't have the synthetic environment to deliver the sophisticated joined-up training that we will need to deliver in the future. So there will always be a proportion of live training that we need to do to develop certain skills. But distributed um, synthetic training with both live and synthetic players, I think, is something we need to look towards in the future. And my vision may be rather too simplistic, but as a future young junior pilot leaps into his Joint Strike Fighter, um, I see him logging on to the network, and he will be received in very much the same way that he's received when he logs on to Amazon. He will be greeted. Hello, Glenn. Um, how would you like your information configured today? And he would have, the, the system will have built up habit patterns, just as we see on the internet. The information you get in the cockpit, the aircraft will be configured to operate in the way that you would like to see um, it operated. You will be passing information to the network. And we shouldn't underestimate the massive capability that JSF will provide us with. It is not just a stealthy offensive platform. It is a massive ISR platform as well. The challenge for us is how do you integrate JSF into a truly robust network and how do you integrate our legacy platforms into that network as well so we can truly um, harness the capabilities of the individual systems. So I think, in summarising, there are some enduring themes that we can draw from the campaigns of the last 25 years, not least the importance of gaining control of the air but also that every one of those campaigns has been slightly different as well. But I would contend that the world is as unpredictable as it has ever been, and we would be completely wrong to be skewing the way we operate or our force structure um, to focus on what we're doing today in Iraq and Afghanistan. There are some very important lessons we need to, to learn out of those campaigns, but we need the broadest possible capability that we can deliver. And I focus very much on the air, the air environment, but one of the key lessons for me and my past experience over the last 25 years is that every campaign should be approached from a joint perspective um, because that is no, there is no doubt that approaching it in that manner will deliver success as uh, in the most efficient and the swiftest way as well. Ladies and gentlemen, very happy to take... Any questions?
Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you heard the Chief of the Air Staff. He's very happy to take questions. Good evening, sir. Thank you for a very educational lecture. I have no allegiance, only to myself. Start, you started your lecture at 1939. If we can go forward a year to 1940 in the Battle of Britain, lack of pilots, tiger moths, nine hours instruction on spitfires and hurricanes, and into war. Uh, we've already seen the, the big Russian bear awakening from its slumber. I believe we had a bear come close to us ten days ago, which was met by the Air Force. I think Mr. Putin is a very intelligent and hard man. What would happen in a war of attrition of pilots? You're not going to put a pilot into a JSF after nine hours of instruction. Thank you. No, I agree with you, and which is why um, I'm putting so much emphasis on building a sophisticated synthetic environment to complement our uh, live training as well. And I do think we're making some significant inroads into this already. Um, what we've developed is a concept demonstrator up at Waddington, which consists today of um, four cockpits, um, tornado cockpits. We've got, uh, we're able to link in um, some of our big, air big aircraft like the E3. Next step, we're going to put um, another four cockpits. What this allows us is to do, obviously, uh, relatively straightforward training at Waddington. But this is linked up to the States as well. Uh, and the US are already using distributed mission training um, to a very large extent. There I say to do some of their more basic training rather than the more advanced training, which is where I see possibly the greatest um, value from this. What I see in my vision is to have a hub at Waddington where we'll be able to um, have most of our big I-Star assets. Um, but I see on all of our main operating bases some not full mission simulators, but relatively basic cockpits because we're not teaching people to fly here. We're teaching them to operate in an environment. You can do things that we will never be able to do except on big set-piece exercises like Red Flag and such like where you can bring these resources together. How often are we going to have every day a JSTARS or an ASTOR, um, the offensive platforms, the air defense platforms, the command control, both airborne and um, the uh, KOC? Uh, where are we going to be able to ha get our land component and our maritime component, SF um, people, to operate as well? We're already looking uh, with the concept demonstrator that we uh, are currently designed. We are training forward air controllers who, prior to them going out to Afghanistan, the next step is to link up to some of the army simulation that they are already using as well. So I think that is the way we will prepare people for the future. I also look back at um, my my flying career um, and the sort of young people that we're generating today flying our our platforms, I think they are hugely more capable than I ever was because they are, we've learned a lot from operations. Um, I think they are a lot better trained than I ever was, um, both during their initial flying training, but actually the training that we give them and, and the focus training that we give them today as well. Um, so that's why I think um, we have to, the, the path we set for our training for the future is the right one. So, Glenn, uh, Mike Steeden, the Defence Science and Technology uh, Lab. Uh, you made much of the critical importance of technology as a force multiplier. I wonder if you'd therefore be prepared to share any thoughts on the adequacy of current UK levels of investment in military applied research, 
but more particularly perhaps um, in the technical skills and competencies on which our research infrastructure in the UK depends. Mm. Um, there is no doubt uh, that we would all like to invest um, more in research and development. It is at the heart of much of our military technology. I, I think the Defence Acquisition Change Programme um, will, through a greater partnership with industry and with some of our technical, with our technical research um, organisations, lead to uh, a better partnership overall and a more focused use of our resources on delivering the sort of technologies that we think we need in the future. When we were going through the Defence Acquisition Programme, I actually spent a, went across the States as part of a wider visit and spent a day with DARPA to see if there was anything that we could learn from the way that DARPA operates, um, where they are very successful, as we know, in developing some groundbreaking technologies. Um, they have the advantage of significantly larger budgets than, than the UK clearly has, but some of the techniques that they use in terms of looking across a broad swathe of, of technologies, bringing people in from industry for a very small, short amount of, relatively short amount of time to develop a capability, but also being absolutely rigorous in saying, that's not going anywhere, we're not re investing any more money in it, thank you very much, come back in 10 years' time, or, or whatever. I think it's a discipline that maybe we need to um, exercise rather more. I think one of the other things which we in the UK need to get better at is spiral development. Um, we wait, I think, too long to hone some of our capabilities. We in the military, in setting requirements, I think sometimes set too high a bar, and much of the risk which is introduced into programmes is a result of pushing some of those boundaries. Um, and I go back to when I started flying the Jaguar. Um, we had lots of different ways of dropping weapons, but in reality we probably only used three or four of them. And if we had moderated our ambitions, there would have been less te technical risk um, involved in that program. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have the hooks in a capability to develop it, to develop it long term. And you see that, there I say, if I pick one example, you look at Predator. The way that that has been developed, dare I say, it came out of DARPA, uh, but then it has been developed over the years very rapidly as well. And that's the sort of um, philosophy I think we should be using for the future. So yes, Andrew Brooks, um, you rightly mentioned we ought to prepare for whatever might come rather than focus. But of course that depends on having the best people, best trained, capable, flexible, open. And yet over the years we've seen the progressive reduction in blue suitors in the RF largely from treasury-driven constraints, and dare I say, stripping away all the quality-of-life assignments that allow people to come back and spend time with their families, retrain, all these good things. And it continues to go on. How are we going to reconcile keeping and attracting the best and the brightest with an ethos perceived out there that all we're offering is constant operation, operation, operation? And put another way, do you ever wake at night and think we've cut too much and we ought to change that philosophy? 
Making, the ser making all three services attractive, um, I think, is one of our real challenges. Um, at the moment, the Air Force, the return of service for an officer in the Air Force um, is around 16.3 years, I think, last time I looked, and is about 12 and a half years for our um, airmen and other ranks. Why do we need that return of service? Because we spend a lot of money training people. The downside of training people and having highly intelligent, highly skilled people is that they are very marketable, and not just pilots. Um, many of our technicians, particularly CIS, but lots of our other trades, are very marketable individuals. Is this new? Um, we've always faced a pull from um, particularly the airline industry, but also from other industries as well. And you're absolutely right. No, not, not one of us joins the, any of the services to be millionaires. Um, what we expect to um, get whilst we're in the service is to be paid a fair wage, um, to do what we want, want join that service to do. In our case, to fly aeroplanes or be involved with flying aircraft. For those in the Navy, it's to uh, go to sea, and for those in um, the Army, to be involved in land, land, the land component activities. If you take any of that away, you will not keep people in the service. And also, if you take away what I call the totality of service life, and as soon as you start dismantling that, that's when I think you see people articulating, I'm not getting paid very well. Because that's easy to grab hold of, where it's not, um, not as easy to articulate that the lifestyle maybe has changed a lot. So I think what we've got to focus on is making sure that we provide that exciting lifestyle um, that I joined the Air Force for. And when I go back to my theme, you've postulated that the level of operational activities that we've experienced over the last few years is going to continue for the future. Well, I'm not very good at crystal balling. So I don't think that may be the case. It may be the case. But one thing we have got to do is get our operational tempo down to manageable uh, levels. And CDS um, has articulated why we are where we are. But I, I, I think we can see our way forward over the next um, a couple of years to get those down to manageable levels because you're right. It is the families who actually take the brunt of um, the difficulty when people are heavily committed on operations. In terms of size and shape, of all three of our militaries, of our environments, I think it's one of the UK's massive strengths uh, that we have got that balanced force structure. Yes, we've got gaps in it. We've always recognised that there are certain capabilities we may not be able to afford. And indeed, because of the type of operations that we're likely to, op to, to be involved in, for instance, a SEAD capability. Yes, we've got alarm missiles, but we've not really got some of the more sophisticated capabilities, which even the US find a real challenge to, to fund, and, and we've seen what's been going on over um, replacing Prowling. So we've recognised that, yes, we need a broad military capability, uh, but we may have to take certain risk, um, but, but we, provided we understand where that risk is, that, that's the main, main issue. And I think the other thing which is important for the UK is the depth of our capability, not just the broadness, but the depth. Uh, and I go back to when I was um, sitting alongside Buzz Mosley in Saudi Arabia during the Second Gulf War. And we were 
deciding what he would like from the UK in terms of air capabilities. The one thing which sets us aside from many other nations is that when we say, yeah, we're going to send this air package, uh, then we can actually send it in virtual totality uh, in terms of the depth of support that we provide it as well. So we can sustain it. We can get it to the theatre. And that is pretty unique, I would suggest, amongst um, most other nations except for uh, the US, probably the French. Uh, Keith Manns, Chief Executive of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, CAS, I think a lot of people will consider there are three main threats facing this country. The first is international terrorism. The second is strategic energy supplies. And the third is the threat from countries that have a nuclear capability, including Russia, and the means of delivering it. Uh, we had a pretty flexible way of dealing with that third threat. As I understand it in the future, certainly on the nuclear side, that threat is going to be dealt with by one Trident-style submarine with a reduced capability of delivering nuclear weapons. Do you think that's enough? I do. And without going into all the details of the work which was conducted in coming to that conclusion, Keith, um, we did look at all the options. We looked at should we return to um, using air-delivered um, nuclear weapons to give us the range of capabilities that we required. But I think uh, the solution that we've come down to does give us the in an affordable manner. And, I, and it, it's always how do we balance our priorities across, as I say, what is a broad force structure and making sure that we cover as many of the bases as we possibly can as comprehensively as we can. So I do think the decision that we've made uh, is the right one uh, for what we're likely to face as best as we know it for the future. Could I perhaps therefore invite Sir Donald Spears to give a vote of thanks on behalf of us all? Sir Donald. Thank you, President. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, we have quite a long history in the Royal Aeronautical Society of having uh, good lecturers for the Sydney CAM lecturer. But I think even by that standard, tonight has been an outstanding performance. But then what would you expect from a man who is an aeronautical engineering graduate? Not only that, but while he was an undergraduate at Imperial College, he won the Royal Aeronautical Society Prize for aeronautical engineering. So tonight we've been repaid for a bit of that, I rather feel. So Glenn, you've given us a splendid tour de raison of contemporary military history, and I rather suspect I even saw Tony Mason make, taking notes at one stage. In all the scenarios you examined, the vital importance of air superiority came through, not just for ground attack, which is what people tend to commonly think, uh, but particularly for intelligence, uh, for short-range troop movements, and of course for supply chain management and maintaining what is needed there. We've also seen the development of precision attack from essentially, well, absolutely nothing in the Falklands War in 1982, through to just beginning in the first Gulf War when we sent those first two experimental TL pods out to find out how they worked in effect, through to today where it's really highly significant in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Despite 
what we've seen, the demonstrable effect of air power, Sir Glenn made no claim that air power could win campaigns on its own. And uh, I'm sure most of us agree that's right. But what he did do, very importantly, I think, to us, is to give the lie to the suggestions that have been put about by a number of people uh, recently, some of whom should know better, like Max Hastings, that only the army is of any value these days. Indeed, some of you who've read that may recall that he even said that chief of defense staff should only come from the army in future, which I don't think you get much agreement for from this room. Uh, and in any case, the lie has been demonstrated, as I say. The enduring theme that came through, I think, uh, as was demonstrated at the end, was the vital necessity of control of the air, because without that, doing anything constructive becomes very, very difficult. But also now, in practice, the vital importance of ISTAR, particularly as you move to, to more unmanned vehicles and the delivery of precision weapons. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you've been given a lot to think about and a lot to discuss amongst yourselves. But before you go away and do that, could I ask you to join me in showing our great appreciation to Glenn in the normal way? Great, Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.